Few things are harder than the mission of raising your kids. At The Dad Project, we get experienced dads to reveal what's worked for them, offering practical, time-tested advice. Being a successful dad is tough, and we're here to help you get it done. Welcome to The Dad Project. This episode of The Dad Project is the second in a two-part series on the father's crucial role in the sexual education and formation of his children. In part two, Martin Bowles covers how to handle this sensitive topic with children. Martin is an attorney and educator from the Los Angeles area. He and his wife have nine children and two grandchildren. I'm going to talk about teaching our children about sex. And the first point may be something where just in and of itself, we need to change our plans or our practice with our children. And that is that teaching children about sex must be done by us parents. More generally, it's sometimes said, and I think very wisely, that parents are the first educators of their children. We parents are the first educators of our children. And that applies, that applies to everything. Or it is our duty to ensure their education. And, and it is our primary duty. We can't delegate the responsibility for that. We may have people who teach our children, but it is our responsibility to see to the proper education of them. And that applies to, say, the history of our country. I think one of the problems we have of citizenship today and irresponsible political opinions and voting is that parents have just delegated without oversight, without correction, without attention, how their children are educated about the history of our country and the principles of its founding. And so we have a generation of voters coming on who are ignorant about that. And that's a dangerous thing. And even more important and potentially more dangerous is ignorance of our children about the truth about their sexuality. So that's got to be something that that we teach them about, that we don't delegate, that we don't rely on others. And one of the reasons is that in our sex-soaked culture, our children will learn about sex at a astonishingly early age, well before probably it's taught in, in schools. And what they're gonna learn is not wholesome and frankly, it's not truthful. And that's why we have to get control and, and do this right and do it early. And that's the, so that's the key thing, that we parents have to do it. And point number two, we have to do it much earlier than we might think. Now, I think that most people who are listening, including the person who's talking, find this duty of parenting, this, this thing we do as parents, awkward. It's... Uh, won't go into all the details of it, but uh, why, why, is, why it's an awkward subject to talk about. But the awkwardness of it and our natural, understandable hesitancy to talk about it is not an excuse. When you think about some of the most important things that have ever been done in history or things that we know about in our lives, they're done by overcoming a fear. Soldiers never, at least I think few soldiers don't have fear going into battle. What they do is they overcome their fear and they act according to their duty. And that's what we have to do here. And it's a comfort to know that that's the case. It, one of the most comforting things I ever heard 
and I've kept it with me ever since, long, long after I remembered the name, was that some NBA Hall of Famer uh, admitted after his career was over that before every game, or certainly before every key playoff game, he was so nervous he was vomiting in the locker room. But he went out there, he overcame that fear, he didn't show it, and he performed. And as the athletes say, he got in the zone. Or Ronald Reagan, the great communicator, as he's known, admitted once he was afraid or had nervousness before every single speech he gave. And yet we know he did a great job at it. So our fear should not control us here. Obi-Wan Kenobi did a disservice when he advised Luke Skywalker, pay attention to your feelings or obey your feelings or follow your feelings. I forget the exact phrase he used. Use your feelings, Luke. No, as the great philosopher Aristotle taught us, we have higher faculties as human beings, and that includes our intellect and our will. And our intellect tells us, uh, given what's going on in the culture now, we have to do this, and so we just will ourselves to do it. And we'll do a good job because it's God will help us. This is the this is the role He's given us as parents, and it'll be a lot better than if we don't do it. Now, when we talk about, or when I talk about our duty to educate or teach our children about sex, I guess my third point here is primarily or most importantly, most essentially, it's not about what we say. Now, I'm going to talk about what we should say and when we should say it. My best uh, judgments about that based on experience and talking to others and reading. But none of that is going to stick or have the effect we want unless we teach our children by our example about the truths of sexuality. So in this talk, when I talk about the fundamental truths of sexuality, I'm talking about what I'll I'll abbreviate here as the three G's. One is sex is good. We're not talking here about treating sex as as dirty or bad or something to be guilty, feel guilty about. It is good. Number two, it is given by God. So it's not just good and we can do whatever we want. It has a very supreme purpose to it. And three, that it's given by God for our, as part of a gift of ourselves, that we give ourselves completely to another person, totally and permanently. That total self-giving, that permanence of self-giving and commitment to self-giving, you've already guessed, that's marriage. In other words, it is, sex is good, but it's given by God for the state of marriage, which means that total self-giving to another person and in a permanent union ordained for, for having children. And when you think about it, if, if, if we can instill in our children from their earliest ages this idea that sex is part of giving oneself, if that really sinks in, then everything else follows from it. And you almost don't even need some of the specifics I'm going to be getting into. Because then it's about giving myself to another person. It's never about using another person for my pleasure. And, uh, and so we'll, talk, we'll come back to that a little bit more at the end about how to form children in that kind of attitude more generally. So going back to the most important way that we teach our children about sex, it is by our example. And let's pause now and think about what kind of example am I giving my children of how I treat sex and how I think about it. 
And children will pick up on clues such as, what kind of uh, movies do we watch in the home or TV shows? Are they, are they R-rated movies? Now, I know there's R-rated movies as in perfectly chaste or pure sexually, but, but a lot of war violence, and I'm not talking about that. That's a, that's a different subject of, of parental judgment. But um, do we entertain ourselves with things that treat sex contrary to the three Gs as something that's just, just for fun or that's funny or that's, uh, that's, that can be casually engaged in? Do we, or do we make a sacrifice of an, and, re- and have an example of rejecting that, even if it might otherwise be funny or entertaining to us? Here's a, get to give it, get even more concrete. Think of the Super Bowl. When we watch the Super Bowl, are we, um, are we muting commercials that we, that we realize are bad? Or are we even making the additional exercise of caution of maybe taping it a few minutes in advance so that when a bad commercial comes on, we can fast forward through it? Even the latest uh, NCAA March Madness has been on has had one or two commercials that uh, I think are inappropriate. Do we make jokes about sex in that, that in a way, now everybody, we don't want to be too uptight here and there's, you know, everybody can, can laugh sometimes when some of these things come up, but, but are we uh, revealing or living or displaying an attitude that's contrary to the God-given purpose, and which means holiness of sex? How do, we, how do we behave? Do we flirt with women? Do we, are we really, are we faithful to our wives, not just in, um, not just in, sexual behavior, but in those things that sort of, again, kind of break down or erode or suggest the untruthfulness of this very uh, holy purpose. Do we talk in, 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 in appropriate ways with women who aren't our wives? Are we, are we guarded in, in terms of inappropriate, in terms of touching, in terms of, and in terms of how we look? And, you know, and do we dress appropriately? So those are things that if we do those things, if we, and that means training ourselves, maybe even educating ourselves, maybe we need a little refresher course on, on these basics of, of the three G's. And then uh, maybe we need a, a good coach or a good partner in living these, this example of, of, of treating it with respect and appropriately and, and our own self-control. And if we do that, then these other things will um, have a much easier time to be absorbed by our children. And in some ways, they'll, all, they'll be known by our children almost without our words. And then the big battle will be, as it is, as it's going to be a battle inevitably, things having to do with, with self-control and, uh, and just getting the right information instead of misleading information. So that's what I'll turn to now, which is the, wor- this, the actual explicit teaching that we do. Of our children, and as I mentioned at the outset, these days it has to be earlier rather than later. The, the old marketing slogan that there, you never get a second chance to make a first impression is all the more important here. We don't want our children's first impression of sex to be some sort of filthy perversion that some friend, in large part, part out of ignorance, passed along. Not only is does that then become the first impression instead of one of awe and, and respect? But if that is the first impression, and then 
a substantial period of time goes by when we aren't addressing it, and that first impression sits there and festers, then what can happen is our sons or daughters can uh, have a really creepy notion of what sex is, begin to feel guilty that they even know about it, and then when it comes time for us to talk about it, it's all, there's almost a blockage there that um, because they feel so guilty about it, and, and they're thinking more about their own guilt, which of course is not based on anything that they've done or are at fault about. So, uh, to borrow an expression, better to talk to them about this a year too early than five minutes too late. Or as another wonderful uh, set of authors wrote, and I'll give some, um, I'll give some citations to great books at the end, that ignorance does not ensure their innocence. And, thankfully, their innocence is not harmed by the appropriate level of our talking about this with them. Another way to think of it, and again, I'm borrowing from the same book, is our talking to our children sooner and appropriately is like a vaccination against the disease that can run rampant if they're getting perverted uh, information from the news media or entertainment media and friends and so on. In, in timing, when we have this discussion, we can be misled if we try to gauge when we should have that conversation with a threshold question of, hey, son, have you ever heard anybody talk about something called sex? And then they say, no. Or have you ever heard anybody talk about fill in the blank, maybe some kind of perverted thing that you think maybe they've heard about and you might need to uh, undo the damage of? We can't rely on their answer to that question as the trigger point for when we have this conversation. Because again, if they've been hearing these things from friends and they're feeling guilty about it and, and, and getting very anxious about it, they may, uh, through no really fault of their own, lie to us and just say, no, I haven't heard about that because they're afraid to death and feel guilty about the fact that they have heard about it and that this has been roiling around in their minds. And um, inappropriately, they've been feeling very dirty and guilty about this. So again, the importance of getting there early and talking to them. Okay, so let's let's talk now about you know, what we say and when. And in all of these things, uh, at all of these different stages and specifics that I'm gonna suggest, some overarching things. One, we should always be truthful, but we can keep it simple, especially at some of these early ages. It should be something where we're, we're talking about this one-on-one -on -one in private. Dad should definitely talk to sons. Moms can also talk to sons at an appropriate age about some things. And, and I'll talk also about how important it is for dads to talk to daughters. But I'm going to be focusing now at first on dads talking to sons. And that uh, as part of this, we make sure that we always tell our boys, by the way, don't talk to your brothers and sisters about this. Don't talk to your friends about this. Their mom and dad will, will talk to them. This is just for us to talk about so that they don't go blab and, and, uh, and mess things up in terms of our friends' right to educate their children about this. And then, and then always the three Gs, that this is good, that this is God-given for a permanent and total relationship of self-giving that includes uh, the purpose of, of having children. Okay, so now getting into some, some ages and some content. It's great if... By the toddler stage, and I mean you know, 
age three or so, when they, when they are sort of become aware and uh, can absorb things, that uh, that if they can learn in a natural way about the anatomical difference between men and women, boys and girls. If you if you if they have younger brothers and sisters, they can help change the diaper, and that can be pointed out. And that's so that's a good good thing if they can learn that naturally at an early age. Shortly after that age four or five, we should be ready to answer the question that comes up sometimes at the strangest times of, you know, where does a baby come from? And to have, and maybe have practiced, uh, and so we're ready, like our little elevator, little 20-second elevator speech, something along the lines of uh, mommy and daddy's love puts that baby in mama's tummy, and that's where the baby comes from, with, with the help of God, something along those lines. And seldom is there any any push by the children to go beyond that. So if we if we are ready with that and we can give that answer with naturalness and calm, then that's that's the second step. Then in elementary school, age six or seven or eight, and again, earlier is probably better. It's safe to assume that they will have heard uh, just about anything we can imagine about sex before the fifth grade. So I would, I would recommend age six, the latest age seven, that I think we should impart the basics of what I will call the three A's, anatomy, act, and abuses, that we revisit and remind about how mommy and daddy, men and women have different sexual anatomy, use the proper name for that. Also mention the other names that are a little more uh, common, should we say, that they probably have heard. And number two, that a husband and wife come together in a loving way in private, um, and those parts come together, and that's how uh, God gives them the, the power, this wonderful power to, to make a baby. And the third A, which is abuses, that they may hear from their friends or see on TV or see uh, on some friend's iPhone or something like that, uh, how this act that we've just described um, is used in ways that are weird or wrong and that they should not be confused about that. This is a thing that is given by God that is good. In fact, it's holy as long as it's used for the purpose God gave it for, which is this total self-giving in a permanent union when two people are married and they're having children, they're making a baby. And th but that they will hear people talking about other things that are that are just like doing it for fun or doing it the wrong way or doing it the wrong time. And it's just like other things they, they know about that that people can um, eat a whole bunch of candy at the wrong time and get sick or that they can sleep in when they should be getting up and going to school, that that uh, the things that are given to us in this life. As good, all the good things that are given to us in this, in this life, like food or sleep or drugs to make us better, make us healthy, can all be misused. And so that uh, they shouldn't be fooled by that. And if they, and probably the things they're hearing may even not be right. The, if friends talk about these kinds of things, they may not even know what they're talking about and probably don't. And that they, they can, our children should be encouraged, again, in a natural way to Come talk to us anytime. We'll be happy to answer any questions about this. Now, it's, it's natural to be hesitant or to be kind of take some pause when we think about 
describing that this can be abused. But one thing to keep in mind is that anything that we don't discuss, any subjects or things we omit, they will learn somewhere else. Now, that doesn't mean at age six we have to go into every vulgarity, every bad word, uh, or, or describe in detail every bad act. But the idea that this can be abused and that people will probably talk to you about things that are um, either not true or sort of a, a wrong way that this wonderful gift can be used by people when they think they're um, going to have fun with it, but, um, but they're actually misusing it. Getting that idea across early, I think, is important. You know, even though right now I've gone over this in, a, in some detail and with some explanation and uh, uh, sort of background analysis of why we should do this, when we actually have this conversation at this early age, it's good to follow what sometimes has been called the three C's, which is be clear, but be concise, and then change the subject. In other words, don't belabor it. Don't uh, get too fretting about it. This is something that is natural, these things. Uh, and so we should, there should be sort of a sense of uh, that we're, we're comfortable in talking about this and that we don't, um, that it's good to, to then change the subject pretty quickly so that it doesn't, it's not something that they sense that we're um, uncomfortable with or complicated about. So a good way to do that can be to have this conversation, for example, in a car where um, any sort of discomfort you may have uh, that, that may naturally be reflected in sort of, you know, shifting eyes or, or squinting or something like that isn't necessarily um, revealed by face-to-face. -face. And also it's easy to change the subject in the car. Hey, look at that billboard. Oh, look, the Lakers are playing tomorrow or something like that. Or to go into a, a place like a museum or maybe a restaurant that has some pictures that you like to look at and then say, hey, look at that B-17 picture or something like that. Uh, the other thing to, to talk about at this early age is, again, in this in the subject of, or the aspect of, of, of abuse of the good thing of sexuality, is that to warn that because there are people out there who do bad things and misuse things, that if anybody ever wants to touch them in their private parts or wants to show them naked pictures, then they should get away from that That's and, and come talk to us, that that's... Those are things that um, we know we know as adults that are going on out there that can be cause harm. So just to just to forewarn them of that again, clearly, concisely, and change the subject. When we have these early conversations at the early elementary school grades, as, as I'm recommending that we do, um, some kids will just almost act like they don't hear us. It won't soak in, and that's fine. If it, you know, for some kids, if it's not talking about their latest action hero or uh, their next snack, then um, they're not very absorptive of what their parents say on just about anything. Other kids will, will react with joy and wonderment, and, uh, which is what we want. Others, others may say, ooh, that's kind of weird, or something like that. But again, we, we, um, we should be prepared for different kinds of reactions from different children. And, um, but this way, they've, uh, because we're approaching this with naturalness, that we're, and we're positioning ourselves as the voice of truth and authority on this, and we're always coming back to those themes of the three G's, um, then it will be then it will be fine. Now, when where things get more have to get more detailed, 
and um, where things may have to be repeated with more emphasis is when the children are approaching the age of puberty, when um, either they or their friends are going to actually become sexually mature young adults. And there I would add to the, to the three A's of the anatomy and act and abuse, we have to get a little more, we have to go into those things with more detail. Again, knowing the, the reality that whatever we don't describe or discuss, they'll probably hear from somewhere else. Uh, and at this age where the sexual urge starts to awaken or others around them start getting, uh, having these sexual urges and either acting on them or talking more about them, that whatever we omit, uh, their curiosity, which is natural, may take them, uh, may drive them to try to, to learn about from friends or the internet. So we want to provide them enough detail that that curiosity is lessened and also enough detail that they know we're comfortable speaking about this with them and that we, they can rely on us to be truthful and open. And then I would add to the, four, the first three A's, a fourth A, which is arousal, that we, um, we talk to our sons and our wives talk to our daughters about the signals their bodies will start giving, giving them that they are, that this gift of sexuality is now awakening in them and that that good pleasure, that, that those feelings and are associated with a good thing, which is that men and women are meant to come together in this way and in that setting of total gift and total and permanent gift of self. And that God accompanies that with this supreme pleasure of the sexual act. And that as we talked earlier in their, in their childhood about that good things can be desired by us when we know we shouldn't have them, when we should wait a little later, like a snack before dinner or uh, uh, sleep in the middle of class or something like that, and that um, they will feel the desire, this arousal for the sexual act before they're ready, before they are ready to get married, before they're ready to give themselves totally and permanently to another person. And first of all, that that's going to happen. Second of all, that that's natural. They're not evil when that happens. Uh, but third, that um, it's good for them to, to work hard to try to control their reaction to that and not give in to that. And uh, it can help perhaps to, um, to use some analogies. And here I'll bring in another threesome, the three Ps, that this urge, this arousal is powerful, but also that it is pricelessly good and therefore it should be protected until the right time and the right situation. This total gift of self in a permanent relationship, namely marriage. And you can use some analogies. There aren't as many nuclear power plants anymore, but, but when we think about nuclear power, you know, nuclear power plants, as good as, as that that energy that they create is, and it allows us to light our homes or heat our homes and so on, but it's, it's protected. It's put in very, uh, because it's so powerful and, and used in the wrong way um, or in the wrong place, it can cause harm. So we, we put it in, in a, protect, a very strongly protective situation or, or valuable jewels or a valuable painting or family heirloom. We, we protect them. We keep them from 
protect them from rust and, and, uh, and, and theft and so on. So likewise, this is a great gift. It's very precious, but we need to protect it. And that, uh, that we know that these urges are going to come to um, both from ourselves and from, from the temptations of others to, to misuse it. And then also to forewarn our children that when they're together with someone of someone of the opposite sex who's at the same stage and they feel this natural desire uh, to share that with this other person, to, to know going into, into that age of their life and in those circumstances, they cannot trust their own judgment at those times. That they're, they are going to start, if they're ever close to someone alone, or the opposite sex, uh, they'll start having these feelings that make them think it would be right to start sharing themselves physically and that they cannot trust that judgment. That in the heat of the moment, what they're feeling is undependable. And they just have to go into it knowing, no, I can't do that. Now, the best way to do that is to avoid those occasions where those feelings start to really ramp up. So it's good for us parents to impose some constraints on their social life. And, and for them to, to understand, again, if, we, if we've imparted repeatedly the three G's for them to understand that they should impose them on themselves. And one of this, it's not good to be alone when you're a teenager with um, someone of the opposite sex. You can get to know them, you can have fun with them, but be in a group. You know, don't go driving off in a car together. Don't, uh, don't go on a date together. You're not ready to get married. You go have fun. In effect, all the fun of dating, uh, of getting to know someone and enjoying them, um, do it in groups. Okay, another thing to, um, to impart to our children at this, at this stage, and uh, I'm going to now go to the three Ds, which are disease, development, and dignity. Disease. Fear has its place in uh, getting our children ready to resist the temptations of misplaced sexual activity because, again, the arousal, especially in teenagers, can be so powerful that it can be good for them to think, no, this, this, is, this, is, this could be dangerous. And so for them to know something about STDs uh, and how uh, easily they can be transmitted, how uh, permanent can be the infections um, is a good thing. And for that, for, for sort of appropriate treatment of that that still gets the powerful message Across, I'd recommend on YouTube the talks by someone named Pam Stenzel, S-T-E-N-Z-E-L. And I'll just leave it at that. Um, so that's, that's the danger part, um, the disease danger. Second, development. I think it's good for our children to realize, and it's, it's very hard for them to put this into practice. So maybe it's more for us parents to realize their development as full human beings will be stunted if they get sexually involved as teenagers. They, it's seen again and again that boys and girls who, have, who are going steady in high school get lower grades. Their grades stop going 
down. And they become so wrapped up in the other person, especially as they get sexually active with them, that they start to lose their own self-esteem. They start they stop developing themselves in ways intellectually and, and socially because they're so wrapped up in that other person. And, uh, and by the way, if your son or daughter is dating alone, one-on-one with some of the opposite sex, they are going to be doing sexual things. I, I'm, uh, I've been involved in leadership of a school uh, where incidents that, um, of teenagers getting, getting into sexual trouble come up. And it's very sad how often the parents thought and thought correctly you know, my son or my daughter is a good boy, is a good girl. She knows what's right and wrong about sex. And yet you put the two together alone uh, and the, the power of those hormones and those instincts uh, becomes overwhelming. And again and again, parents uh, are, you find themselves or sometimes they'll never even find out how ignorant they are of, of what their children were doing. So danger of disease uh, development being stunted. And third is to realize and to, to inculcate the dignity of the other person. That, that for boys, to respect the dignity of their girl classmates and friends and to realize that um, they are not there to be used to satisfy our pleasures and to really, um, and, and if they have that, if they have that principle instilled in them, then it will be a break on what their natural urge is. And they'll say, no, I wouldn't want, I wouldn't want to do that to her, even though I feel that urge. Um, and then what we want our, our sons to do is to, what our sons are going to have to do is learn to fight off the temptation to misuse sexuality. And, and that fight very often is best done by flight. Just avoid the situations that improperly, or that arouse us, not improperly, but that naturally arouse us to do improper things. Being alone with a girl when you're a teenager, watching certain kinds of movies, I would say not even having an iPhone. It's it's uh, one wise person uh, once said to an audience uh, of an event I attended that uh, the proper age to give your teenage son an iPhone is when you don't care if they get addicted to pornography. And it's a whole nother subject, but the boys can get, get along without an iPhone, and uh, it's probably a very good thing to not let them have that. Now, part of what we want to do with our sons as fathers is to, is to let them know that we know how hard this battle is, that they have to fight against their temptation, whether with a girl or for against masturbation, and that um, we understand that this is difficult. We went through the same difficulties. And to let them know that we understand that there are going to be some falls along the way, that everybody makes mistakes, everybody fails in these things as, as in anything, and that we love them no matter what, and that even though sexual falls can be serious things, in fact, um, they can be some of the most serious things and most dangerous things, that it's not the end of the world, that they can, that they should have a can-do sporting spirit, like a good athlete who gets up and tries again. And that's, that's the important thing. In other words, we don't want to give them a complex if, if, if they have a failure or a fall, that we, we understand because we ourselves went through 
the trials, the temptations. We fall sometimes too in these things and we keep trying. And so, of course, we forgive them if they do. Then ideally, we'll be the person they come to and, and talk about these things frankly and feel comfortable with it and that we are not, we're not harsh with them. We insist on what the right standard is and what the right attitude is, but we are friends, understanding friends, and we just keep encouraging them. Again, coming back to what I said at the outset, the most important way we teach these things is by our example. So how can we as married men be an example of sexual self-control and proper constraints and in addition to the things I mentioned earlier in terms of what we do with entertainment and not being flirtatious and not being lookers and stuff like that, um, here's another thought I'll put out there for consideration. If sex is given by God for this total self-giving in a permanent relationship of marriage for the obvious purpose of, um, of having children, then there could be no higher act of, of our commitment to and living that principle, which is the only way for sex to really be in the long run healthy and a source of happiness, um, then what I would urge is that we, um, that we not use artificial contraception. That Because then we're, um, we're using the act and the pleasure clearly the way God, for the reason God gave it to us, and we are also living that uh, exercise of self-control and that battle against just giving into our desires. And even though we wouldn't talk about that explicitly with our children, in, they will, in a way that's mysterious but very effective, pick up on that example. And, and we will also be more understanding because we are we're, we're living in, a, in almost the same way they are when they fight against masturbation. And, and if, we, if we try to say, well, um, you know, my wife and I, are, we want to, if we're not ready to have children right now, if we have a good serious reason for postponing or spacing children, then, um, then we will, during the fertile periods um, of her cycle, we'll, uh, we'll abstain from sex. Then, then we are kind of exercising the same self-restraint and respect for the goodness and holiness and, and, and right purpose of sexuality. And um, the practice of what's called natural family planning, or NFP, is beyond the scope of this talk. But I will say that uh, uh, two things that I've, I've seen again and again in, um, from those who've studied a lot and whose um, reliability I, I have a high respect for, that uh, the use of NFP uh, as opposed to artificial contraception is associated with a tremendously increased success in marriage or essentially a low single digits incidence of divorce. And number two, that it's, while it requires some, uh, you know, some effort and willpower, that it is as effective a form of postponing children as any artificial method is. Lastly, I want to turn, I've been focusing on sons and dads with sons. I want to talk about the unique and very important role that we dads have with our daughters. And now I'll talk about a new three Ds, which are dudes, dress, and drinking. For dudes, uh, we, we dads 
are in a unique position to help our daughters understand the urges uh, that boys are subject to and how the boys, uh, the teenage boy's mind works, uh, how a teenage boy, uh, in most cases, will say anything and may even believe it uh, at a time when he's trying to get intimate with or get more and more intimate with uh, a girl that he's alone with, and, uh, and, and including how the teenage boy mind works is how immodest or revealing dress works on a boy's mind. Because I don't think our wives can possibly understand that. And so um, we can really impart to our daughters how important it is to, you know, to dress modestly. And one thing that we could share with them, uh, and I'm going to give a specific title here, on YouTube if you search Jessica Ray, that's R-E-Y, the White Power Ranger, because she in the old Power Ranger series, she wore the white costume, on the truth about bikinis. Jessica Ray, the White Power Ranger, on the truth about bikinis. Her concluding point is that the studies of the brain of boys shows that when they see a girl scantily dressed, and, and she's talking specifically about in revealing bikinis, that they have the same biochemical reaction that they get when they look at a power tool. In other words, something that can be used. And no one wants to be used. And that gets to the second point after dudes, which is dress or defining the limits of dress. That's something that, again, I think we dads have to take the lead on. That uh, the skirt doesn't go uh, much above the knee. That the shoulders be covered, that the neckline not be too low, that things not be too tight. And again, um, our wives don't have the same understanding of the importance of that that we do. And so we, we should really take the lead in defining that and, and enforcing it. Because it's understandable that a girl wants to be found attractive. And our wives, uh, you know, tend to be sympathetic to that. But what we want to get across is the right kind of person that you want to attract is, is not going to pick you out because of the skin you expose. You want, in fact, you want to avoid that kind of person. And so paradoxically, the best thing to do to attract the right guy is, is, to, is to keep more covered so that you're, you, then the guy you're attracting you know is not attracted for the wrong reason. Then the third D is drinking. And this is a good message, especially when we send our daughters off and our sons off to college, which is uh, don't drink before you socialize alone with a person of the opposite sex. Because then all these things we've been talking about, even if they even if they have internalized these principles and, and the safeguards uh, start to dissolve under the influence of alcohol. And then lastly, the thing that dad sh- should do with our teenage daughters is affirm them to be their best friends and their biggest fans. Uh, that when they come down the stairs wearing that nice, modest dress, we tell them, boy, sweetheart, you look beautiful. And that, we're, that we see them as the whole person and, and their inner goodness, um, recognizing the good things they are, the good things they do, their good souls, their good virtues, their, um, their, their good study habits, their service to others. And if we're always affirming that, then they won't look for affirmation from boys for the wrong reasons. Now, all of this that we've been talking about uh, is uh, what we do as parents, as dads, 
it really, really helps if it is affirmed or not seriously um, eroded or, or, or corroded by the kind of friendships our boys have. So to the extent we uh, can try to make sure that they have good friendships and not just kind of turn them, uh, turn them loose to the randomness of peer associations at school or even um, choose a school with that in mind, then these things will really be reinforced. And uh, there's one very wise parent, an educator, who says uh, an absolute no to sleepovers, for example, for both his boys and girls. I've, also, I've talked about iPhones. But in general, the media, the Internet, we really want to have tight controls on those things, that the Internet is not has a good filter, that it's never used behind closed doors. Out of, it's not in the bedrooms. It's in a public place when other people are around. And in general, we have rules about the media. I want to go back to where I began, which is that these things that we say, as important as they are in terms of the content, the, the, the overarching principles of the three Gs, getting the timing right and making sure we're not too late, that um, it's all part of this broader idea that we respect the dignity of all people and that we exercise self-control in all things. So if our children are taught from the earliest age, putting the specific subject of sex aside, if they're taught to control their impulses, to control their desires, if we teach them through our example and their repeated practice that they have to wait for certain desirable things, they, they don't get to snack without limits before dinner, or they have to wait until they're done with their homework before they, um, they get to do a certain sort of form of recreation, or that they have to clean up their rooms before we have a certain kind of play. If, they're, if they learn the right timing of things and self-control from the earliest ages without being uh, excessively strict and, and picking just a few things, of course, at the youngest age where they practice that, then they have good habits of self-control when the real battle begins at puberty. And likewise, if from the earliest ages, they learn to see other people as, as deserving of service and respect for their dignity, and if we always set an example as parents, as their parents, that we don't use people, that we don't, we don't treat people as just something to, to, uh, to exploit or to gossip about, that we're always respecting the dignity of other people, that we take them to nursing homes once in a while, where there's nothing to be gained and everything to be given by, by spending time with those people, then there will be a, already a very strongly embedded way of looking at, at people as, as people that they respect and that they want to give themselves to who have a dignity that they would never violate or do anything inconsistent with, then it will follow naturally the specific principles we've talked about with respect to sexuality. And while it will be a battle, of course, during the years of puberty, they will be fortified in that battle by understanding the principles and having the habits of looking at others as something to respect and something to serve and something as people to give themselves to. And that means giving themselves, when it comes to sexuality, in that permanent, total commitment of marriage and that they would reserve sexuality for that. I'd just like to conclude by, in both the interest of uh, 
giving credit where credit is due for some of the, not just the ideas I've used, but some of the phrases I've quoted uh, to a couple of books that I would highly recommend. One is uh, called The Wonder of Sex, subtitle How to Teach Children by Dr. and Mrs. J.C. Wilkie, that's W-I-L-L-K-E, two L's. The book was first printed in 1964, and yet when you read it, it is remarkably timely and uh, highly recommend it. And another book for how to talk with the youngest children about sex, even when you're not using that word, is The Wonderful Way Babies Are Made by Larry Christensen, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-O-N. I know that's available on Amazon. Hey, thanks for listening to The Dad Project. If this talk was valuable to you, please go to our website at dadproject.net and make a voluntary one-time or recurring donation to help support our operations. Any amount helps. Catch you next time at The Dad Project.